like the panelists to come up here, please. So I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. Um, I've been interested in um, how the United States thinks about how it staffs itself uh, for the challenges of the future. And um, one of the ways in which we exercise our soft power is through AID. But um, I wanted to convene a group on something that may seem like an obscure and kind of wonky, it's certainly a wonky topic, um, but I think an important topic that doesn't really get any attention and, and, and it may seem a little bit odd as to why is a think tank having a conversation about something called FSNs, which are, stands for Foreign Service Nationals, which are local hire professionals who support the mission of the United States in country. There's also another thing, a little, and a more obscure thing called a TCN, a third country national, but I'm not gonna get into all of this now. There's a whole alphabet soup of this stuff, but the point is the United States can't fulfill its mission without the expertise of uh, many people on the ground. There's oftentimes, that, for example, if AID has a mission, um, it'll have 50 people or 60 people of which maybe 10 or 15 are U.S. passport holders and the rest are not. The folks that are not are often there for long periods of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. They have PhDs, they're engineers, they're, they're, they have CPAs, um, and they also go on to have fabulous careers. Um, some go on to become ministers in government, some go on to um, have senior leadership jobs as elected officials, or um, they run universities or university departments or schools. So they are very, very accomplished people. Um, in the U.S., it, you know, oftentimes we, you know, it also it helps to have folks who aren't native speakers who are helping to understand the landscape and, in addition to their expertise, actually be able to be effective. And so it's quite important. So this is sort of an unrepresented or undiscussed part of the way in which the United States exercises uh, its, its interest and its influence abroad and is sort of, a, of an, un, an unexplained and kind of gets really into the weeds, but is, is quite important. Um, so we wanted to convene this because in the additionally, there's been over time greater and greater intersection between the State Department and AID and the way that the State Department and the way diplomacy thinks about Foreign Service Nationals and the State Department also has Foreign Service Nationals and the way that AID, which is a development agency, thinks about Foreign Service Nationals are different. And so as we bump up against issues of consolidation and efficiency and we bump up against uh, approaches and assumptions and cultures, it's, it sometimes can create some frictions and some misunderstandings. So that I think is the context by which we're, we're convening this discussion. My friend, Administrator Andrew Natsios, feels very strongly about this issue and has agreed to do a five minute video that we're gonna play now. He couldn't be here with us in person but felt strongly enough about this to take the time to do this. And I think we'll kick off this conversation with a video from Administrator, former Administrator of AID, Andrew Natsios. I would like to thank Dan Rundy and CSIS for organizing this important conference today on the role and importance of USAID Foreign Service Nationals in managing aid programs and acting as liaisons to government ministries in developing countries and to civil society organizations. This subject has virtually no visibility in Washington policy circles and is of little interest to the constituency groups which support the 150 account and foreign aid generally. 
If any scholarly studies have been written by academics, research institutes, or policy centers on the USAID workforce, I have been unable to find them. And yet every AID officer with any experience overseas knows that the agency would not be the agency without the FSNs, which make up 65% of the direct hire workforce though they are neither foreign service officers nor civil servants. They are the best source of information on what is happening and the societies aid programs serve. They are the best face of AID and America in dealing with any sector or constituency of the country. They speak the local languages and understand the nuances of the culture and politics. They can do all these things because they in fact are citizens of their own countries and yet they understand how AID works, what it does and how it does it. They understand what America is all about, and they are development professionals. They are the institutional memory of what AID has done well or not so well in their countries. They are the continuity for our aid programs around the world. Foreign service officers, no matter how capable and how brilliant, cannot serve this critical role because they must, by federal law, cycle out to their next assignments after a maximum of four years, which is not long enough to develop institutional memory in a country sense, certainly not to retain it. Many of the AID FSNs find their experience and training and exposure to the American system prepares them to run and hold higher office in their countries. USAID FSNs have been elected as president in Costa Rica, vice president in El Salvador and Ecuador, elected to parliaments and city councils in the Balkans, the First Lady of Peru, wife of former President Toledo, was a USAID FSN for many years before he was elected president. The Haiti Minister of Health and former Principal Economic Advisor to the President of Haiti are former FSNs. I could go on. What is clear is that the FSN system is a training ground for leaders in developing countries who often, often go on to higher office. The, government, the U.S. government and American people are better served to protect the country if American leaders in other countries have worked for AID or gone to American colleges and universities and understand our culture and our institutions. The AID FSN system, which has been so critical to the agency's superior operational capacity, is now under severe stress because the State Department Management Bureau has for 15 years attempted to equate state FSNs to USAID FSNs, which should be an Entire, two entirely separate personnel systems where a state has no control over the aid system. State Department FSNs are employed in maintenance jobs and administrative duties at a much lower level, while USAID FSNs are in charge of spending hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid programs. Most, many, have advanced degrees and are senior staff by any definition. They should be treated as such. For 15 years now, the State Department Management Bureau has been working to seize control of all USAID business systems and has tried to merge these systems into the State Department which serve entirely different purposes. Nothing has done more damage to AID and our foreign aid programs than this misguided effort. AID FSNs are in great demand. They will take jobs in other aid agencies operating in their country because state FSN salary structures are being imposed on AID FSNs. Many are leaving. These salary scales are not competitive and will compromise 
over the long term the operational capacity of AID as these critical staff depart. If policymakers want to increase the success rate of our aid programs and achieve real sustainable results, they should perhaps pay more attention to the operational consequences out of what appear to be mundane but extremely important administrative systems like protecting the FSN workforce and AID, which is one of the agency's greatest assets. Dan, thanks again for holding this very timely conference. Wow, a hero for our time. Fabulous, a great American. Um, the privilege of my professional life was working for Andrew Natsios, a truth teller, if there ever was one. Oh my word, thank you, Andrew. Okay, so we have some very special people who've come in for this. The, for, as uh, Administrator Natsios described this as a, a mundane but important topic, seemingly mundane but a very important topic. Um, I'm very pleased that Ambassador Pam White has flown in uh, from Maine to be with us uh, for this. Ambassador White was um, ambassador in Haiti and ambassador in the Gambia and three times mission director, mission director in Mali, mission director in Tanzania, and mission director in Haiti and Liberia. So, and had a, and was, you were a foreign service officer in um, at AID. I don't have enough time. I could go on. I could go on. So, uh, so let me start with you, a Ambassador White, because I think I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the difference between how you were an ambassador and you were a mission director. You were you had and many years ago. Uh, you were an executive officer at well at AID. So you've had a very interesting career. Could you just talk a little bit about how the State Department sees FSNs and how AID sees FSNs? and you, either your reaction to what you heard from Administrator Natsios or any other thoughts you might have. Okay, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's funny you saying she flew in from Maine. It's like, you know, normally I'd fly in from Ghana or Tanzania. <laughs> like, you know, right. But anyway. All the way from exotic uh, yeah, Maine. Yeah, an hour and a half uh, flight. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be here and it's great to see so many young faces out there. I'm, I'm always so afraid that we're not, continuing to uh, interest people in the Foreign Service, and it's a fabulous career. We need your youth, we need your energy, so uh, welcome, <laughs> stick, stick, uh, stick with us. Um, yeah, the, the difference is just so fundamental because development and diplomacy are two very different uh, crafts, if you will. Uh, somebody told me when I was first nominated uh, to be um, ambassador, they said something along these lines, different, this is, I'm paraphrasing, but they said diplomacy is telling someone to go to hell, and they say, well, thank you, I'm going to enjoy the ride, uh, in such a way that they don't quite get what you're saying directly, but uh, you bring them into your circle. But development, as obviously all of you know here, is what we do in third worlds to improve the conditions in that country. It's a very rewarding um, career and uh, very fulfilling. But the diplomacy really is an American job, if you will. We're there, the United States government sends Americans into its embassies around the world to be the face of America. We're there to represent the views of the senior leadership uh, in Washington. And so 80% of the 
interface with the governments uh, wherever we serve is with Americans. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the econ officer, the Paul, the RSO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of them are Americans, and most of their staff are Americans, and so that's, that's who's interfacing with the host government. On the development side, it's very different. There, our senior FSNs are constantly being the face of government. They're the ones that we rely on to tell us about the culture, the customs, the ge geographic the regions, the corruption, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, we travel with them. We go to conferences with them. We ask their opinion. They're sitting in the room with us all the time. It's an entirely different function than what you would see at the State Department because development and diplomacy are two very different uh, arenas. And so, and I was, I was saying, also this morning that when I was in Haiti, we had a coup about every other week or whatever it was, right? Dr. Gideon, she and I worked together there. And um, I remember my kids, in fact, saying to me, Mom, was we going to have another coup day? It was like snow days in Maine, coup days in Haiti. But when, <laughs> when you have a coup, everyone except essential personnel uh, gets, uh, you know, uh, evacuated out of the country immediately. And so who is there to run the mission? The FSNs. I mean, and without their talent, without their knowledge, without their dedication to the United States government, we would just fall apart. And Susan and I saw this after the earthquake in Haiti. Who did we rely on? It was the FSNs. They were all there. They don't get to go home when something bad happens. So, um, like I said, and, and by the way, the State Department could run just fine and dandy only with Americans in the, in the building, I mean, at the, top, at the upper levels. Now, they need the drivers and they need the maintenance staff and what have you, but at the upper levels. But we can't. We can't function without our FSNs because they're right up here and part of an intricate part of uh, everything that we do. Okay, so, Pam, when, why has there been, why has there been this whatever I want to describe it, misunderstanding or conflict. Could you comment on that a little bit, please? Yeah, I, I, I just, I, it's, I think it's just a basic misunderstanding of the function of our, especially our senior FSNs. I mean, in, a, in any embassy, you know, at most, 90% of the drivers are all threes. So you don't have to worry about classification. Or an FSN three. Yeah. A very low level very low classification. Level. And, you know, so the A drivers, the state drivers, the CDC drivers, whatever it is, they're all FSN three. But when you get to these upper levels, like, what, what is the appropriate uh, grade for a medical doctor that has done all kinds of research, that is multilingual, that has studied at Harvard? I mean, where do you plug that person? And they don't know. They don't have those people working for them. And so I think it kind of falls apart just in the functionality of what we do and who we have to hire to keep our mandate going. So, so Ambassador White, so if you were... God? Yes. If you had a magic <laughs> wand, if you had a magic wand... I keep forgetting. What? We're going to operate in the terms, magical realism terms here at CSIS. So if you, were, if you had a magic wand and you know that there's been sort of this... There's, there are tensions about how do we have more efficiencies. So the State Department say we need to consolidate, we need to have more efficiencies. 
What would your response be if you were either still an ambassador or you were at AID as a senior foreign service officer? How would you, what would you say to the folks at the State Management Bureau about this if they were here? I think the efficiencies that we have already, although we, we, could, we could certainly have more within our own agency, uh, AID, but um, I think it would, it would just be jumble mumbled mess if they tried to take on and have that learning curve, which you know would take years for them to get to the point where having a Harvard-educated doctor, uh, you know, where do you put that person on the FSN salary scale? And by the way, if I was goddess of whatever, I would I would eliminate the FSN salary scale above grade nine. Just I would be done with it because we're we're constantly. You know, I, I would put it closer to what we pay PSCs or TCNs. Or so, like a PSC that. is a personal services contractor. What's that? It's, it's a it's a contract that uh, contracts for a person. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm one right now, so I don't know how else to put it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe how 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 far they've fallen, but uh, yeah, because uh, we you know we 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 try to put these these magnificent professionals in a box where they really don't fit. They really don't fit. They don't fit as an FSN 12 or FSN 13. And so what do we do often? We hire an American. Or, or TC in third country to come into these missions at triple the cost of an FSN. If we just paid the FSNs a little higher salary, on, you know, on some scale, but I, like I said, I hate scale, but um, I hate the FSN scale, but you know, that would be equivalent to what we would pay a TCM without maybe all the benefits. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ambassador. Okay, so Susan, um, so you were the, you say, Counselor, which is the most senior foreign service officer, you had you had a very interesting career as a foreign service officer. You're now, uh, you're you've had a you've transitioned to a new an, a a related life, but a different life, um, <laughs> at the International way. Youth Foundation, where the chief operating officer. Um, but I know you were. Very, could you talk a little bit about your exper your professional experience, vis-a-vis -vis FSNs, and some of your interactions around what was called the QDDR, which was a massive planning exercise between state and aid and, uh, and, and some of the things that came out of that and, and, and some of the issues that, that come up as we talk about these issues of consolidation and managing a, an effective workforce. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Well, um, first, there we go. Um, first, good morning, everybody, and thank you for being here, and thank you for those joining online, and most importantly, uh, thank you to Dan, CSIS, and it was wonderful to have our former administrator uh, addressing an issue that, you know, is the unknown issue. These are our unsung heroes. We are so fortunate to have uh, Dr. Gideon and Sharif here to join us today, and we really want you to hear from them, because uh, the reason we are here is we would not be able to perform our jobs as the lead development agency in USAID and really conduct foreign policy, as Ambassador White just said, without our foreign service nationals. They are the unsung heroes. They are the ones who are not only incredibly talented and that we recruit them with amazing backgrounds, degrees from Harvard, managing hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars um, to really perform on the behalf of the US 
US government. But as Ambassador White just described, and our administrator and Dan, they are the ones who are the continuity and the glue. Um, as not just foreign service officers, but frankly, any expat coming into a country, um, as we know, when we perform development functions, we're entering into a local system. And we bring certain technical knowledge and understanding, and obviously we are very mission-driven, no matter where we are within the ecosystem of development. But ultimately, it is the host country. It is not only um, the local staff within uh, USAID, but it's the host country who we're partnering with that ultimately will be the deciders, as they should be, of the direction and the trajectory of their country. So we are so fortunate uh, to have more than half of our uh, staff of USAID to be foreign service nationals who are not only incredibly capable and, and talented and, you know, doctors, and, and I worked with a nuclear physicist in Russia. Um, others, as, as the administrator uh, said, had gone on to incredible careers uh, as Supreme Court justices and, and, and leadership positions, but that they will continue long after we have left. Because as they said, we have to rotate, not just as foreign service officers, but really most expats who come in and out of countries. So whether there's a disaster, um, as for example in Haiti, not only the earthquake, uh, but actually in 1991, one of the many coups, uh, our mission director, David Cohen, is here, who was leading the mission at that time. And he only he stayed, as well as Dave Eckerson, who was here earlier, um, and everybody else had to leave. Everybody else left the mission, um, except for our FSNs, of course. And uh, yeah, Pam, well, no, you had already rotated out, I think, at that point, on to your next maybe, yeah. oh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, but that, there's a very few number who actually, of Americans, who are allowed to stay. I should also really qualify that, because um, there are restrictions. We have, to, we have to get our expats out. But it's our foreign service nationals who continue that humanitarian assistance program, who, who continue uh, that, that work. And so the continuity, the glue that they provide on behalf of the US tax taxpayer is absolutely fundamental. So now to fast forward to where I think Dan was uh, really leading me to, to go, to the importance of um, the FSNs and, and the progress we have tried to make, I think, in the last uh, decade in, in particularly, because as there have been issues of soft mergers, of consolidating services between USAID and State Department, the FSN issue comes up time and time again. Uh, would it be better just to have them all merge within one central function, function managed by the State Department, managed at post by the management counselor, and treat them all the same? And the answer is no. And it's for all the reasons that we just talked about, but what are the concerns and then why, for example, during the QDDR and in the aftermath of that, did we create uh, a foreign service um, uh, National Advocacy Council, which I'm so pleased Sherry Fennell is here from USAID, who was really um, the leader of this and has been the champion and leading the office uh, behind this for the last six years, is because we need to make sure that we not only um, invest in, frankly, our most important um, part of USAID in our professional development. We need to make sure we're compensating them. We may need to make 
sure that they can advance. Um, and so this issue of the Foreign Service National 13 position uh, that Dan mentioned was something that came up in the QDDR. And so we developed an entire agenda over the last, um, you know, basically eight years more or less. I think the FSN Council, Sherry, is about five, uh, five years old now. And it's very important that we continue to really advance and invest in the largest segment of uh, not only uh, USAID, but frankly, the talent and the continuity um, that we depend on every single day on behalf of the U.S. taxpayer. So I'll okay, but so, so Susan, talk about, there was something called an FSN World Conference. What, what was that and why was that important? Yeah, so it was incredibly important. Uh, as you know, we have approximately 70 missions uh, around the globe, 70 USAID missions around the globe. And we had never in more than our, at that point, 50 years of history, brought together our FSN leaders as one global unit. We do it for our mission directors, we do it for our ambassadors, uh, and for our foreign service nationals, we had only brought them together in regions. And that's important, but one thing you should all know is every embassy has a foreign service um, national council that meets with the mission director and with the ambassador on a regular basis. But what we did in the conference was we brought them together globally for the first time in 2013. And what was most important about, you know, conferences can be conferences, but what was the most important thing by the last day, they said, well, we have an action plan and we want the administrator to hear what we really need globally in order to advance so that we, USAID, the, the lead development agency, can be as effective as possible. And they came up with a 10-point action plan. The administrator, Administrator Shah, blessed it that day and said, move forth. And since that time, we created a council that has had very clear objectives, targets, results that uh, we had to meet, and reporting to the administrator on a regular basis. I hope under Administrator Green's leadership, and I have to imagine um, this is an issue that he is seized with, having been a former ambassador, understanding the importance of the role that uh, Foreign Service Nationals play, that this Advocacy Council and the agenda continues. Because if we lose the capacity that we have built over decades in our Foreign Service Nationals, then we will lose our ability to perform on behalf of the American people. Okay. So let me just push a little bit further, Susan. So at the my understanding is because of some of these misunderstandings or let's even call it conflicts with the State Department and sort of this change in sort of the mindset about the in terms especially because the United USAID hires doctors very highly qualified doctors engineers etc and sort of there's a misunderstanding from this from a State Department diplomacy standpoint like why does AID need so many of these highly paid FSNs um, there's been a whole series of, of issues around um, who gets to write up the position and how, who gets to set the pay scale. Could you just spend a minute on this issue of like how, how that gets done? It's a, a, a completely eye-glazing topic, <laughs> but it's really quite important. Um, you know, so could you just spend a minute on that? And then could you spend a minute on when, I, when you want to hire a doctor in Haiti, uh, there's this thing called pay scale and we say, okay, well, I'm going to go and look out and see what's the comparable pay and mm -hmm. how's that all work? Because it seems to me that also, again, is a stupid, it sounds like a stupid and mundane topic, but it's really quite important. Could you just spend a minute on that and explain some of that, please? 
Thank you, Dan, and this is why we love you, is because you care about these very um, eye-glazing topics like position descriptions and compensation, but they are welcome. absolutely critical to us to be able to perform our jobs as the lead development agency, because ultimately, um, the way a position is crafted will determine whether or not Dr. Gideon or Sharif can be at the highest level of the Foreign Service national scale, and they can be compensated as they should be, not only for by the U.S. Embassy, but also because otherwise they will be snatched away by incredible competitors. As we know, we have around the globe, uh, not only with multinational companies, but obviously with other competitors who, who want this talent. So the, the incredible importance that USAID can maintain the ability to classify positions, to be able to determine this is the level of position we need in in order to engage the president of a country or a prime minister or or manage, as Sharif did, hundreds of millions of dollars. That is absolutely critical. So that is the first issue. And we need to make sure that USAID maintains that, uh, that very important um, uh, bureaucratic function. Uh, the others is that the compensation package, and this was part of the FSN Advocacy Council agenda, that we, and, and now running an NGO uh, along with my colleagues, that you know, one of the things that we do is we look at what is the competition paying, you know, professionals in this area, as we should be. Well, you probably didn't know this, but um, it, we do this on a regular basis, obviously, with our embassy staff. But because our, um, our staff, obviously, at the level that we're describing, um, they're not always being compared to the competitors appropriately. And this has been an issue that we, and I, I'm glad to hear, I think we've made some progress in some areas, but to make sure that the competition that USAID has, whether it's with the UN, the World Bank, multinational companies, banks, what, what have you, that we're making sure that that compensation analysis is appropriate. In my opinion, and one of the great disappointments I had in my 25 years in the Foreign Service was that um, we weren't being transparent with our colleagues about who they were being compared to. Uh, Sharif shared an excellent example earlier today at breakfast. Uh, it was something that our FSN Council argued for with the State Department. Be transparent. Who are we comparing our staff to? Okay, so let me just interrupt for a second. So let's just be very clear about this. So if I'm in Haiti, I'm going to be a little flippant, but I don't think I'm too far off the mark, that it may be that the State Department is comparing, say, low-level drivers to Uber drivers or taxi drivers, something like that, and they may or may not be comparing they may not have the comparables or may not be using those kind of comparables, so it could be, and maybe this is a little bit on the extreme side, but it's something like they're comparing Uber drivers in Haiti to the medical doctors. Is that sort of what we're talking about? That, that is a bit of an extreme example, but, but I, it I is. I think I'm in the zip, but I'm in, but, I'm in the but zip code. No, that, that's exactly the case of we as, um, because the embassy, um, uh, what they, they don't call them foreign service nationals. They actually call them locally employed um, staff. And so there's the LES staff and the FSN staff. The LES staff is important for the functioning of the embassy, as Ambassador White would testify. You need these people not only to be the drivers and the managers of the warehouse and whatnot, but also to really be doing the functions of an embassy, which are very different, as she described, the diplomatic function and the development function. But because, um, frankly, there are so many sections to the embassy, we're only talking about USAID and the State Department. As you know, we obviously have a foreign commercial 
judicial section, we'll have the Department of Justice, we'll have DEA, we'll have lots of different uh, parts of the alphabet soup there. And they all get lumped together. And, and what we are, are saying is that the group that we depend so much on in development is unique, and so their compensation analysis should be separate from other parts of the embassy uh, in order to understand and make sure that we are attracting and comparing our staff. Okay, so why, why would they not show that list of comparables? Well, and this was something that during our worldwide councils, our FSNs, who are incredibly articulate, would argue for, um, and they simply just said that they were not allowed to uh, share that information with foreign service nationals. So we argued, uh, obviously, as the leadership of USAID, at least it should be shared with us and with our mission directors. So our mission directors, most importantly, then can sit down with our foreign service nationals and have an open and transparent discussion. And our mission directors around the world, and I think the, uh, Dr. Gideon and Sharif will testify to this, always have this dialogue in an open, transparent way as much as we can. But it is a great disappointment, Dan, because our, our country should is built on transparency and um, obviously making sure that we are on the right side of, of, of justice. So I hope, I hope in the future, I heard in Jamaica recently, they made some tremendous progress on this. That, that is outstanding. And I think if we can- Sorry, continue, sorry what do you mean by that? Just give an example. What does that mean when well, you say Well, that the our FSNs understand that working for the U.S. government, they are also taking tremendous risk. We talked about, obviously, earthquakes and coups and whatnot, but they're often out there on the front lines. They're representing the, US, the United States, and that comes with a lot of benefits, but that also comes with a lot of costs. And as we pick up and we move on, um, they, they, they need to feel as though we have their back. So compensation and understanding who they're being compared for to and the awards, that shows an openness and transparency um, and a relationship and a partnership that our country stands for. And that's what we should ultimately um, okay. always be striving for. Okay, so, so Susan, I, I get the sense that if, if, if this is an important part of how we deliver our assistance, I. I I was a little concerned about that AID used to have as many as 100 top-level folks at the highest end of the grade. And my understanding is now the United States has six. So what does that mean? What does that mean? And what is the implications of that for our ability to do our work? And what, it, what happens if we don't fix that? Well, I think we all saw over the last year and a half or so um, a mass exodus from the State Department of our most senior leadership and, and the damage that that does to diplomacy cannot be underestimated. My, my fear, I think many of us fear, if we are not able to um, really invest in our foreign service nationals, and you said, Dan, compensate at this highest level and be able to advance them. Our, our foreign service nationals, just like any, uh, you have your first, we all have the universal values of, of our family. And we have to obviously support our families and be able to um, really feel as though we are making the biggest difference that we can make. And our, our foreign service nationals are motivated by this. But if we are not treating them uh, fairly and able to advance them, and we made great progress, I felt like over the last several years, but if if we cannot do that, they will walk out the door, and that will have a tremendous impact
reflect, I think, on our ability uh, at USAID to be the lead development agency. Yeah, Ambassador White. Yeah, uh, the, uh, and the fact of the matter is this panel is very well-timed because uh, I see all over Africa, I've just spent the last year going back and forth over there, that business is booming. And it's the fastest growing middle class on earth. And we are, we are going to lose our most valued FSNs. They're going to be snatched away by the private sector. There's, uh, I mean, and in Ghana, where I've sort of my base is, we are having a hell of a time maintaining our senior FSNs. The drivers, the maintenance people, get that covered. But the, but the professionals are walking out the door faster than we can, we can hire. And by the way, the last time we advertised for an engineer, we got zero responses. Okay, so let me just push just a little bit further on Susan and Pam, then I want to hear from Dr. Getty and I want to hear from my friend, my new friend Sharif. So, okay, so is this happening now? So are we losing people now? Are there countries where we cannot hold people now, Susan and Ambassador White? And is that a function of some of this, uh, let's call it, I want maybe I won't call it dysfunction, but maybe let's call it tension or brokenness between efficiencies and a consolidation temptation on the part of the State Department while balancing sort of our ability to actually do our jobs. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Are there specific countries? I, I've heard Mexico, I've heard other places. Susan, Ambassador White. Sure, just um, really quickly. I mean, this has been an issue where we'll have certain missions and embassies hem missions hemorrhaging at certain times. Um, Ghana and Pam, I think, just got back from Ghana, so she can speak to the most recent. But uh, Ghana, when uh, Jim Beaver was the mission director, uh, they were losing and uh, over. 50% of their FSNs, and that had to do with compensation. Um, and again, you know, we went to the mat on that. Mexico, I know, between FY14 and 16, lost 68% of their uh, Foreign Service nationals. Okay, can and, we just say yeah. th that's a bad thing, right? It's I'm a just, terrible thing. Okay, it's just, a terrible thing. Check. And so we're always uh, really, when we see this happening in certain USAID missions, uh, we we immediately address. You know, we we're on the issue. What do we need to do? How do we address it? But it's almost like playing whack-a-mole yes. because you're, you know, again, with 70, 80 missions around the globe, you're constantly looking at, okay, what's happening in that country? What's happening in that mission? And often, you know, obviously engaging the ambassador. Often the ambassador is very alarmed by this and you're then dealing with State Department. You're finding it's a compensation issue. It can be professional development issues. It can be in some cases supervision. Um, we should not assume that just because expats come in and they supervise foreign service nationals, um, that they're outstanding supervisors. And I don't know how our foreign service nationals deals with so many expats coming in and out at varying levels of competence, not only in their technical field and supervision. So there's a lot of investment, and I'll say one last thing, and then obviously Ambassador White, and then want to hear from, from Sharif and Dr. Gideon. But this, the larger issue is how we manage our human capital talent for the 21st century, and we have we have to restructure it. That is, I think, the call to action for this administration if we really want to be able to advance U.S. foreign policy. Okay, thank you. Okay, I rest my case. Thank you. Okay, so Dr. Gideon, thank you for being here. So you, I want to say were, something. Okay, all right, Ambassador, I'll give you a chance, and then I want to give Dr. Gideon a chance. No, I'm just just quick, 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 and that is, yes, we are losing. I, I just came back from Ghana, like I said, we are losing some of our top-notch people, but which is bad enough, after we've invested in them, we've trained them, we've sent them around the world, we've sent them here and there, that's bad enough, but we can't replace them. 
We go months and months searching for a replacement. We, we was a couple of jobs we were advertising for the fourth and fifth time. So it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. Okay, thank you. So Director you flew up from either, I can't, I can't tell if it was Port-au-Prince or from Miami, but you, you're a very busy person. You're the dean of a medical school. You have a, a graduate degree from Harvard. You're a medical doctor. You were an FSN from 1986 to 1997 with AID. You had worked in the health ministry. Then your country called you back and asked you to be health minister after being an FSN. So you were one of the people I really wanted to be on this panel because I think there's sort of this, uh, like I said, I think we've heard this conversation about um, there's different mindsets about foreign service nationals. And I said, I want somebody who's made it big in their career. And you, Dr. Getting, have made it big in your career in the, in the field of public health and medicine. So I'm so pleased that you would agree to take time out of your busy schedule to be with us. It's a, a privilege and an honor to have you here at CSIS. So could you talk a little bit about how did you end up working as an FSN at USAID? Thank you, Dan, for this question. But allow me to present my respect to this very select uh, audience. I'm so pleased to see uh, people I work with uh, many years ago. <laughs> and to thanks also, my uh, salute, my uh, co-presentator, the panelists, and to thank you for the invitation. How I ended up working uh, as an FSN for USCID? It was very simple. We followed standard procedures. <laughs> uh, USAID had posted uh, a job uh, um, request or for uh, in the most read uh, newspaper in Haiti, the Le Nouvelliste. Uh, I responded uh, to to this uh, to you know this advertisement. Let's say to this advertisement. And um, I was uh, called for an interview. Uh, I went, of course, and uh, instead of the, 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 you know, the usual interview process, I was delighted and I was honored to meet with the mission director and to the <laughs> chief of uh, health population and nutrition office. I felt confident, it was a conversation uh, I met with them twice, and uh, I was called and said you're hired. days after <laughs> I was hired. Pretty much. But I have, I have to say to that um, uh, USAID was at the forefront of foreign aid in Haiti at the time. Um, USAID was having uh, programs uh, funded uh, um, in all important sectors in Haiti. Health, education, public works, um, law, justice. So it was a big mission. And um, you know, at, um, at the very first time, I felt uh, valued empowered to carry uh, the function I was hired to do. So that's how I started. And um, I had a close to 12 years uh, um, work with uh, USAID. Okay, and so, so from there, how, how did it, you got a phone call 
Yes. Just like you got a phone, you got you answered an advertisement. It wasn't an advertisement. You got a phone call saying your country needs you, and we need you to become minister of health after you left as an FSN. <laughs> so, how did your work as an FSN at AID help you with your work as Haiti's minister of health? Like I said, um, the very first day we were, I felt personally uh, valued, empowered. Uh, what it means is that um, with, uh, I would accompany mission director, uh, chief of HPNO in all their meetings with the decision making level people mm -hmm. at the political, at the uh, technical level. So, um, my reputation, you know, has grown steadily. And not only that I was uh, uh, the national expert in my field of, exp in my field of experience, and uh, I was also the face of USAID. I was uh, uh, the uh, a representative of the donor community. So, um, you know, it, it was a natural I, I was thing. I was on the scene. It was very natural, and indeed, uh, we used to work directly with the the Minister of Health, the Director General, and we would see even uh, you know people she was a with a higher yeah. rank. <laughs> she was. So it was it was uh, very natural. Uh, of course, um, uh, it, that that is. One, one aspect. The other aspect is that while I was uh, at the USAID, I was part of the senior management team. And at that time, USAID was re-engineering. Meaning even within uh, the, the USAID environment, we were making decisions mm -hmm. on how USAID uh, should uh, uh, work better in the country. And the same process was uh, going uh, worldwide. It was not only in Haiti that USAID was re-engineering, but it was worldwide. And we were making decisions. I was trained. Uh, to be uh, a COTR, a contracting officer, technical representative. I had to take uh, the, 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 the procurement integrity courses and uh, uh, so many, so many other uh, uh, training, technical, managerial, that uh, allowed me uh, to, to extend uh, my knowledge, my skills, and uh, I was able to fully uh, fulfill my work uh, once I became Minister of Health. So because, of your, uh, you, because you had been all over the island, because you had worked with all the aid agencies, of which there are many in Haiti, including yes. the World Bank, AID, because oftentimes we're trained in public policy schools or medical schools, you're not trained to move money which if you're a government minister, a lot of your job is moving money, and you had a contracting function, which it means that you basically have the, you had a warrant, you had a license, the warrant's the fancy term for a license to, to buy stuff you, you, for the US government as a contracting officer. So you not only could manage big projects, but you could go and buy big complicated projects and understand those sorts of issues, that that would be an important, those are all important, and manage teams and lead teams and lead an agenda, these are all things that you brought with you into your role as, uh, as health minister. Of course. So, so then you left 
as health minister, and then you were, uh, you're now the dean of a medical school, or you were the dean of a medical school? I, I was until recently the dean of a medical school. In Haiti. In Haiti. And I'm proudly a volunteer uh, worker for. So you're a state, senior stateswoman in public health. Is that a fair way to describe <laughs> yes, it? Yes, you can say so. So, 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 Dr. Gideon, could you just so, as you listen to this conversation, what if you were sitting with the State Department or you were sitting with the leadership at AID and you've heard this conversation about? Would you be concerned uh, listening to this conversation, or, or should should the United States be concerned that they're going to lose some of its best people if they don't get its act together on, on fixing this problem? I would be uh, very much concerned. Um, like uh, uh, Pam and Suzanne was saying, uh, if at a certain level, you know, people should be graded the same, have the same comp compensation plan, uh, and. The, the U.S. government, but I believe that, uh, and Pam said it, everybody says it, diplomacy is something, even though in my work I had to, to learn to be a diplomat also, <laughs> uh, having to deal with a head of uh, international uh, institution or head of, uh, uh, you know, private sectors, NGOs, but development is something, and uh, diplomacy is something. Um, when you are uh, FSN at uh, the highest level, uh, it is because you are a true professional. You earned your degree, you know what you're doing, you sit with the decision makers within USAID to make the appropriate decision, to draw the perfect strategy, to design the best program uh, so to, to uh, save lives or to improve uh, conditions in uh, those uh, uh, countries. Uh, so. Okay, so. Um so, uh, so you you should if if you were I the leadership of the AID, you'd be concerned I right now. I would be very much concerned. Like they say, um, USAID, the missions will lose all their professionals if uh, they, they they are not valued. If if you're not valued, if you're not empowered. Um, you know the the decision makers in the country they, they don't see you. They don't recognize you. What? Uh, you know, it impacts on uh, the capacity of uh, USAID to deal with them. So um, I would be concerned. I would say that uh, the, the FSN at the professional level, uh, technical managerial, should be uh, should be mm -hmm. uh, empowered okay. empowered to 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 do the, the job to do the job of okay. uh, USAID their job. So. Okay, Dr. Gideon, thank you. So I'm gonna roll back the cassette tape 25 years, and in a simpler time, there were, so these. So when you were the top-ranked FSN in, say, 1995, at the, at the Haiti mission, there were probably 100, Susan, is it fair to say there were 100 folks in the aid system at the top-rank FSN level? Is that a fair number? 
Masamenos, work with me. Work with me, right? Worldwide? Yes, worldwide. Okay. So at the time, 25 years ago, there were 100 folks like Dr. Gideon. Mm -hmm. How many are there today? Do you, we, we, I think we heard a number earlier this morning. I, I heard a number called six. I heard a number. Is that, is that, is that right? Is it six? So, so, so would you, so Susan, does that, what does that say to you when you hear that we went from 100 top rank FSNs 25 years ago to six? What does that mean and is that a bad thing? Uh, that means there's a crisis and that really, really concerns me. I had just heard that this morning as well and I think as Ambassador White pointed out just from her travels, uh, in Africa, where obviously the competition is tremendous, I spend a lot of time in Latin America and globally, um, it isn't like 25 years ago where we didn't have the competition. I mean, we all talk about how uh, official development assistance has changed in the private sector, and we talk about remittances, da, 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 but we don't talk about how we actually get our job done. And um, the way we influence, the way that we impact other countries, it is through our foreign service nationals. So to lose where we used to have hundreds at, uh, you know, really top-notch FSNs with incredible qualifications, and, and we no longer can compensate them and retain them at the level we need. That, that is really very distressing. Thank you. Okay. So, Sharif, thanks for being here. So, Sharif, you were an FSN in Egypt. You're an Egy you, were, you are an Egyptian citizen? You were an Egyptian citizen? Yes, I am. Push, push the button. Okay. Yes, I'm Egyptian citizen okay. and I'm here on uh, SIV green card. Okay. So, okay. So, Sharif, so you, how did you become an FSN at AID in Cairo? Well, I have to admit it was not planned. I was traveling from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia where I used to work to U.S. for a visit and spending three days in Cairo to meet family, including my brother, my old brother, who told me I set an interview for you for a USAID-funded project, newly USAID-funded project. <laughs> it, I, I didn't think it would happen. It was not in my plan, but he's my old brother. So <laughs> I decided to please him. So I went to, to, to the interview, and I liked them. Surprisingly, they liked me as well. And, uh, <laughs> and they insisted that I sign a contract before I leave the premises. Wow. That's pretty and, good. That good. <laughs> People talk about government not being efficient. That's pretty efficient. <laughs> Thank you. So after consulting with my wife, I, 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 I accepted and I signed the contract. And uh, the interesting part in this is that it was a new project I was allowed to establish from inception. All the policies and procedures and systems. And I did, to the extent that uh, USAID Egypt, at that time, the headquarters for me, asked me to replicate these systems into other projects. Okay, so, so Sharif, let me just ask you, sorry, just a couple more questions. So you, what kind of degree did you have when you were hired? Did you have a master's degree or just an undergraduate degree? Did you speak English? You obviously speak fabulous English. What languages, you obviously speak Arabic. Did you, you probably spoke English at the time. Did you speak a third language? You probably spoke a third language, at, no, I'm guessing. No, actually I spoke English, and, and I had a bachelor's degree at that time. And I got the CPA after I joined USAID. So, so, so you had a master's degree? Bachelor's degree. In finance? In finance. And so your background was in finance. So you were like yes. a comptroller, financial function. Yes. So they wanted you to help set up the financial systems. You, okay, you speak English and you speak Arabic. You have you had significant work experience in Saudi Arabia doing financial system stuff, yes, right? Yeah. You had a finance degree in from Cairo, from yes. Cairo. Okay, so I can imagine them saying, "Sign here right now." That would I would assume that would be a your skills would be in great demand, right? 
I, I, I'd like to think that way. You would like to think that way. <laughs> I would like to think that way too. So were you hired as the top of the line FSN and what level were you hired at? Were you hired at the top end or like right at the top or just close to the tippy top and then they kind of bumped you up yeah, one okay. over well, time? Uh, for, that was a USAID funded project and I was hired as financial and administrative manager. But I spent three years there. After that, there was a position open in USAID itself for a financial analyst. So you're working for a contractor or some an outside organization? Yes. And then AID said, gosh, this guy is great. He's working for one of our implementers. We ought to have him in-house. Is that what happened? That's okay. what happened. Okay. And so where, what, what part of AID were you hired into in AID Cairo when you in were hired? In the controller office. I okay. was hired as a financial analyst, and then later I became a chief accountant. Okay. And when you became a chief accountant, was that the top of the line? Were you hired as in what would be called an FSN 13? Uh, no, no, actually, not. Most chief accountants are 11 or 12. Okay, but, but pretty I'm high. Very, very few. Okay, so like a lieutenant colonel in the FSN system, right? And FSN 13 is like a general, right? Something like that. Uh, really, pretty high up. Pretty senior, right? Thank you again. I would like to think that. Okay. But I think you, I, I think I, I want again. I'm making the point that I think I think we spend way too much time in the development business speaking wonky talk, and then Earth people say, "What the hell are you guys saying?" Because you guys talk in wonky talk. So there's a reason I'm pushing because then people say, "I don't understand what the hell you guys are saying," because you talk in this gobbledygook. So that's why I'm pushing to yes. get at this. Okay. So, you. so you got hired. You were you ultimately moved up the chain, yes. and you were very high as an FSN 12. Did you become an FSN 13 at some yes, point? Yes, I did. When did that happen? Uh, in 2006 or seven. So, yeah. Okay. So, Sherry, Sherry is the one who evaluated. She did the evaluation it. From, yes. Good work. <laughs> so, 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 Sharif, so you got hot. You became the top end. Did you have? So, were you? Was there any problem? Did the State Department say, mm, you know? Sharif, why are we why are we hiring you as an FSN 13? Was there any problem? Did AID have to get a permission slip from the State Department to do that? Well, I did at this time. I don't think there was a problem. Yeah, I think that Sherry worked on this evaluation, Sherry Final, and uh, it, yeah, it was done through USAID. And can I say one thing there? And Sherry could jump in, but <laughs> this was what we pushed for in the QDDR. So we were able okay. to get this authority, which was so important in order to retain the staff. Okay. It okay. sounds, you know, very. How uh, many people know what the QDDR is? <laughs> no, so that's what I'm. Ambassador White, that I rest my case. Thank you. Okay. So with that, okay. So, but the point is, okay. So, so. So, 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 Sharif. So then, you were the highest. Pay, you were the highest ranking. You were highest ranking FSN as a finance expert. Yes. Did you start getting phone calls when you were? In, so, two questions, actually. So, was it uh, was it a happy thing to be associated with the U.S. government in Egypt? Was that a was that a problem when you go to barbecues and stuff? Did people give you a hard time? <laughs> And I'm quite serious about this because I, I think I was happy. I was proud to be. Proud. No, I understand that. I understand you were. But did you ever get any trouble because of that? Did people give you a hard no, time? No, in Egypt at that time, I mean, in the in the environment in Egypt, it was appreciated. You said was appreciated. So, so let me just a couple other questions. So, I'm a big believer in having foreign language studies in the United States and having as many foreign service officers speak lots of. How many people in the Cairo aid mission spoke fluent Arabic who are American citizens? FSNs, three, four. Yes, I would do, I would say okay, two not or good. three. That's a thumbs down. That's a think tank term. That means that's bad. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm guessing that a lot of the actual stuff 
that went on in Egypt probably couldn't be conducted in English. A lot of it had to be conducted in Arabic, right? That's yes, right. absolutely. Okay, Actually, so I'm just guessing, I, just guessing, I right? I will give an example. I mean, give an example. our program senior uh, FSN officer, I mean, uh, the minister would meet with her, not with anyone else. Okay, well, yeah, okay, so, so again, so we talk a lot about diplomacy and development being two different things. So what ministry are you talking about? Are you talking about the health minister? Or are you talking the education That's minister? That's the uh, uh, Ministry of International Cooperation. The minister oh, that is the famous, all oh, no, no yeah. not that minister. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. And, I, I was and hoping you have a better example. That I, I, we have to take that example off the table. I don't like that former minister. She was a very mean person. Do you have an example of like a health minister, an education minister in Egypt? Sorry? Do you have an example of where they met with the education minister or the health minister in Egypt, met with the FSNs? Absolutely, all the time. All the time? All the time. Okay, okay. No, so, I'm so, talking, but I, I, think, I think the point I'm making is, we don't ha we do have some foreign language abilities, but I, you know, as someone who speaks Spanish fluently, I know that when I go into a Spanish-speaking environment, like it's really important that I, I, I break out the Spanish. So I don't think we have enough people that can break out the Arabic properly. And so my guess is, is that we really lean on FSNs in, in, in languages that aren't French or Spanish a lot, and a lot more than we do in French or Spanish-speaking countries. Now, I know we have people who are trained in Russian and all that, but I bet there's maybe three or four people on a mission. And I don't know let, how me, let me tell you a little secret also, that people who serve in French-speaking countries, of which I've done uh, most of my career, 10 miles out of the capital city, no one speaks French. Zero. I mean, if you don't speak uh, some Creole in Haiti, forget it. So, so let me just bring Dr. Gideon back into this, and I'll come back to you, Sheree. So Dr. Gideon, how many people spoke Creole, how many Americans did you know that spoke Creole Haitian that were at, at, at whatever the FS, foreign Service Institute, like, was there one in the aid mission? <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not too many, but um, some of them, you know, when they wanted to really communicate with the people they are working with, uh, they, they did volunteer to take Creole class or French class. Most would take the French classes. But uh, very little. Okay, that was very big of them, but that probably meant, Dr. Gideon, that they really relied on <laughs> folks like you to represent them and, and communicate and, and to do most of the community. Is that fair, Dr. Gideon? That, that, that's fair. Okay. Okay, but I rest my case. Thank you. Okay. I would so, like Sharif. To, to add something. Yes, language is very important, but I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't limit the, the, the importance only for the language. Uh, it's a matter of trust. I mean, when, when the ministers or the government is dealing with FSNs all the time, they develop a level of trust. Or for 20 years, Sharif, right? Or have years. a 10-year relationship, yes, exactly. not a two-year relationship, exactly. right? While okay. uh, uh, Americans come yeah. for two or four years. So, so that is a big factor, actually. So Sharif, I, would, so I think it's fair to say in a lot of, we're not a perfect country in the United States, but I think it's fair to say there's a lot of corruption in a lot of developing countries. And so I'm guessing that if you were the FSN, you probably read the newspaper in Arabic, listen to talk radio equivalent in Arabic or whatever it is, like talk to people, know people. And I'm guessing that you, Sharif, probably could say, okay, that minister is kind of corrupt. Now maybe the aid mission director kind of knew that. Maybe your foreign service officer person maybe kind of knew that because their Arabic was okay, or they maybe saw the same TV show you did, or but they probably weren't the same barbecue that you were at on the weekend, where like you were talking to local folks who would tell you all that stuff. So is it fair to say you guys had lots of tacit knowledge that weren't in cables or stuff you read in the Economist, or you know that? 
you know, or read think tank reports written out of Washington about what was going on in, in your country. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. So part of it also is about local tacit knowledge. In addition to 10-year or 20-year relationships, it's about local context and local tacit knowledge that yeah, only you can we, have. Is that when fair? When we first saw that the, the terrorist the movement was starting way, way up in the Sahel uh, when I was mission director in Mali, our, our FNs were in the mosque every weekend, and we were, they were being radicalized. And we would, we would rely on them to come back after Friday prayers on Monday and say, you know, whatever's going on in the mosque. This is what I heard on Friday, right? Yeah, okay. So, so Sharif, let me just push a little bit further. Is it hard to get the United? Is it hard to, for the U.S. to hire people at AID today in Egypt because of just stuff going on in the Middle East? Yes, yes, absolutely. So there's a retention and, um, issue. Actually, I would like to add. I mean, I mean, you question. You had a question in the beginning. Are we concerned when we heard that six only are the high grade yeah. now? Are we concerned that USAID will lose? No, I'm telling you, I'm concerned that USAID is already losing. So let's just push this a little bit further, so, Sharif. I agree with you. So um, we're having a hard time because of, let's call it some country brand issues. And we've got a problem now because we have this conflict between, let's call it consolidation, so-called consolidation and, and efficiency versus sort of, let's call it effectiveness and ability to project power and influence. I'm, I'm going to go with door number two. I'm with power and influence personally. So I'll just put that on the table. So. If we don't have enough, F if we can't hire people because we're comparing them to Uber drivers, whatever the, the HR classification is, well, I'm, I'm hiring the carpool to Uber drivers, and so I'll, I'll compare the financial controller to Uber drivers, and I won't tell you what the, what the comparable is, and so I've got to assume it's Uber drivers until you show it to me. Yes. we got a problem, right? we got a big problem. Okay, so if, I was, if Mark Green was here, the amb Ambassador Mark Green, who's the administrator of AID, what would you say to him? Would you say this is a problem? And what steps should Ambassador Green take? Now, it's probably not totally fair, given that you're on you the payroll right now. It's a little bit tricky. Situation, so maybe, why don't, you, why don't you think about <laughs> right, that? And okay. I'm going to ask Susan and Pam to answer that question. And then why don't you think of a diplomatic, a diplomatic subtle, and nuanced answer. But I'm going to ask Susan and, and Ambassador White and Dr. Getting, who are not on the payroll right now, to answer that. And you can come up with a subtle response at the end. So I want everyone to say, OK, so what are the steps that you would take, and what's the end state that we want? Do we, do we need 50, do we need 70 FSN 13s around the world? I mean, if we have six, I'm, I'm guessing that's a bad thing, and should we be able to like, have some ability to go back to that? So I'm gonna start with you, Susan. I wanna hear from you, Ambassador White, and so like, what are the specific one or two specific concrete things? Not, we all, let's assume we all think it's, this is a bad thing, so thumbs down, right? But tell me what the specific concrete steps are, and then I'll let you, Sharif, go last since you're on the payroll and you gotta be a little bit careful about what you say. Right. Susan, you go first, please. I will give you one specific thing that I think any new leadership team should always do um, when they come particularly into senior leadership positions in Washington, as Administrator Green and his team have done, uh, is they need to listen to the most important part, the largest part of the USAID, and that is obviously our FSN. So the one concrete thing they should do is to have a worldwide conference of our senior FSN leadership, map out that action agenda as they've been working on the action agenda for years, empower, integrate, and I promise they will be as seized with this and with, uh, with this workforce as I know every other leadership team has been, uh, and so that would be my highest recommendation to do before the end of the year. Okay. Ambassador White. Yeah, I think uh, 
We uh, absolutely have got to look at the higher, higher grades uh, and, and how we can make them uh, uh, make sure that they exist in all of our missions. The FSN 12s and the 13s have got to increase yesterday. Okay, Dr. Gedeon. Yes, um, I would dare saying that uh, in countries where uh, USAID mission, the US government has a big portfolio, there should be at least one FSN 12 or 13 for each sector. Okay, so one, one most senior level person one for each sector yes, in each mission. Yes, because that person uh, will really uh, uh, ensure the success of what AID is doing okay. in such okay. a particular country. Okay, before I get to Sharif, I want to come back to Ambassador White. So Ambassador White, we were here with the Undersecretary for Management at the State Department. And I said, I don't understand why you guys have all these high-paid FSNs. I've got this pool, and I need to consolidate, and I need efficiencies. You're an ambassador. Come on, Ambassador White, get with the program. Why are you guys, why, why are these aid people whining about F having these high-level FSNs? What's your response to that? Well, you just answered the question. You don't understand. <laughs> and, I, always, and I know I can count problem. on you for subtle and nuanced and diplomacy. That's great. That's why I wanted you here. But no, seriously, but Ambassador, seriously, what would your response be to, in addition to that you don't understand, which is part of the dialogue that AID has with the State Department, and then we have like this autistic, we talk across each other. You speak diplomacy and you speak development. Some what people, is your, what, what would you say to that, that person? Uh, I would say that the, the, the unique skills that AID needs to, to carry out its mission are not the same skills that diplomacy needs to carry out its mission. So I'm, I, I want you to continue to categorize and you know, work on your FSNs, but don't come over to the other side. Our FSNs are unique. They're invaluable to carrying out the development uh, agenda, and we need to have our own authority. Thank you, Ambassador. Okay, Sharif, I'm now coming back to you. So if you were in front of Ambassador Green, what would you recommend? Now that you've had a few a minute to think diplomatic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, I will I will say I mean I agree with all what was said. That's great, really. But I would I would like to more deal with the bottom of this problem, which I'll go back to what Pam said before. There is a big difference between diplomacy environment and development environment. And this would not, I know, I know that USAID, HCCM, HR, everyone is working very hard, but there is a limit to what they can do. Mm -hmm. Because you always get stuck with yeah. what state is doing. Yeah. So I would advise Ambassador Green, if, if he would allow me, to sit with the Secretary of State mm -hmm. and to try to to have an agreement of changing on changing the mindset itself. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can merge, yes, we can work together, but we need to understand the difference in the two cultures. Okay, we have time for two very short questions. You get extra credit if it's under 20 <laughs> seconds. If this is a soliloquy, I'm gonna cut you off. So name an organization and a 20 second comment. Hey, team CSIS, can you guys hurry up and give me the microphones, because I gotta run out of time. This, this woman here, please, and a microphone, and then this gentleman here, short. Name, organization, short. Uh, quickly, Claire Joe. I'm a former FFN Admission China, U.S. Embassy. So um, thank you so much for this initiative to bring this topic out. My question is um, to 
Ms. Rachel, so I understand you said that like you are very concerned about like the human capital talent lose of the State Department, which is very good news for my colleagues in Mission China. And we understand talking about human capital talents, including wages, compensation we're talking about, but also including self-development in your career. Within USAID, I understand for FSO, who is a foreign service officers or American contractors, you always have those career consulting or like HR help to develop their career. Mm -hmm. What about for FSNs? Do you have such a system? Mm -hmm. And is it like a mission based or is so it career development for FSNs? Right? Yes, okay, guys. Thank you. Um, my name is Gustavo Unvel. I'm, I'm with the Committee for Free and Democratic Equatorial Guinea. So I'm from I'm an Equatorial Guinean who's dealt with Teodoro Biang and the family. My father's a former ambassador, and all the, the technocratic in the you know, turf war that goes on between USAID and State Department. How do you hold accountable these dictators who are running amok in Africa, wreaking havoc, okay. and working I, against US interests all right, we get it. with great, great ferocity? I got it, I got it, okay. So FSN, career development, and how do we push back against the bad guys? Okay, so I'm gonna have Ambassador White talk about how we push back against the bad guys, <laughs> and I'm gonna ask Sharif, Sharif and Susan are gonna, I'm gonna ask them to talk about this FSN career development thing. Brief responses, so Sharif, let me start with you. Susan, you, and then I'm gonna end with Pam, Ambassador White, and then we give uh, Dr. Gideon any last parting thoughts. We gotta end it here. Sharif. Okay, as for career development, I know that every mission is trying to work hard for their FSNs, but this is not, there are no standards for that. I would, I would ask that there should be standardization for the training requirements, for the career development requirements, and for how far the mission would support financially the, the, the FSNs in, 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 in getting their training or in getting their certificates. Thanks for the question because career development, professional development in the FSNs was one of the key action items of the Foreign Service National Advocacy Council and this now newly or not so newly created unit within our human capital talent management in USAID Washington is only for Foreign Service Nationals. Sherry Fennell is the head of that. You can talk to her. Th this is exactly where we need to be going, but we need to strengthen it. This is a small unit. I want to make a plug that it should be like triple the size because it's the biggest part of our workforce and we ha only have a few people working on it. Okay, great. Uh, Ambassador White. Yeah, I got the easy question. You got the yeah. easy one. You're an ambassador. I personally think, and this is not the uh, response that you would get probably anywhere else, but I personally think that we should hold these dictators responsible. I think aid should be tied to good behavior. And if you're going to run your country like it's, uh, you know, your corruption all over the I mean, I served in the Gambia with Looney Tunes Jame, right? And <laughs> that's, that's a think tank term. I love that. Go with it. Going with Looney Tunes. Yes, yes. he was Looney <laughs> Ambassador White. And, uh, and I believe that we should tie aid to good behavior. I mean, tied aid has been a, a nasty term for lately in the, next, the last 10 years or so. I think but we I should bring it back. It. I'm, I'm, for, I'm with you. Let's yeah. bring back yeah, tied aid. Tied. Okay, Dr. Gideon, you've made a long, you, made, you came a long distance, so you heard a couple questions, but you don't have to respond to the questions. I just want to give you the last word. If you want to just, is there some parting thought about the role, of, either about the role of FSNs? You don't have to respond to those questions, but I wanted to give you a chance to give you the last word since you, made, you came such a long distance. Yes. Um, I, I want to say that uh, only the FSN, because of their language capability, uh, they have uh, the ability to communicate the, the USAID mission's uh, ethics, values, uh, principle, 
management principle. And it is only FSN uh, that uh, uh, are able to really uh, bridge, uh, build bridge between uh, uh, client beneficiaries and USA technical partners. You know, they have uh, learned to, to listen, to talk, to listen to the people's concern. Yes. So they are best suited, you know. That's right. Yes. That's All right. And, you know, a, a, I would say that um, it came to my mind that uh, the FSN um, search that uh, it like I said, quote unquote, it's like if they had uh, paid allegiance to their employers. To, yes. You know, yes. It is. They are not many. They, they represent. They represent. Yeah. They represent the United States, and they represent it's, the values, and they also, as part of their training, bring bring certain sort of assumptions about how things ought to be done to the country. Of course. Yes. Of course, and it's like, uh, you know, they, they, they make of their own success, UICID success, and they live UICID success like okay. if it was their success. So they are invaluable. Okay. If you want to the, the, the mission to have successful impact uh, with regard to program defunded, if you want to, the result uh, to be to be reached uh, properly, you have to have those efforts. Okay. Uh, please thank uh, the panelists, and I want to thank especially Dr. Gideon and Ambassador White. We have to, unfortunately, we have to, I think, end it here. But I want to thank them in particular for they made such a long trip. And so we have to end it here. Thank you so much. Thank you.